just want to thank Shep Merrick, Brian, for the opportunity to be able to share God's Word with you today. I just think he's, a, he's an amazing pastor and, and chaplain and leader for our community. Uh, he and his family, uh, just phenomenal. And, and Eric, I just want, want you to know how much I appreciate you and, and the heart that, that everybody pours into uh, this religious community. And it certainly doesn't go unnoticed. So for the message today, the uh, oh, let me start with the clicker here. There we go. This guy here, in, in case you don't know, that's the Mandalorian. And if you don't know, the Mandalorian is a bounty hunter in the Star Wars universe. It was created into a television series to rave reviews. And its first season made a pop culture worldwide icon out of the child, uh, also known as Baby Yoda. But we who are Star Wars nerds know that it's not Yoda, that his proper name is Grogu. Now, the Mandalorian TV series was given single-handed credit for saving Star Wars after the hated prequels, the audience-dividing sequels, and the forgotten-about Han Solo movie. It seemed in our culture that Star Wars fatigue had finally set in. General audience interest had waned. But, as one Screen Rant writer put it, both diehard obsessives and casual observers were brought together in a rare instance of harmony by a little show called The Mandalorian. Now, for those of you who haven't seen the show... To, me, to be a Mandalorian meant much more than just being born on the planet Mandalore. It was also about subscribing to a certain way of life, a code of practice and ethics that was akin to religion. Kind of like being born an Israelite meant much more than just being from Israel. The religious culture was built in. And like the Jews of the Old Testament, Mandalorians stood out as different everywhere they went. Exiled from their homeland, they became sojourners and nomads. They were often misunderstood by the world around them, the Mandalorians. Their religious practices and their moral values were very foreign to outsiders. To which Mandalorians would often respond... When the world around them was befuddled by their actions, when others just didn't get it, they would simply say, this is the way. This is the way. If you think about it, it's beautiful. It's, it's simple. It's concise. Anyone can understand it. This is the way. Not your way, not my way, not that way, not the highway, but this is the way. Now, the outsiders may never understand why the Mandalorians had such peculiar religious practices, but one thing they all soon understood was that the Mandalorian was not going to deviate 
from the way. He was a thousand percent committed to it, strikingly resolute. And although later episodes gave room for the Mandalorian to grow theologically, we as the viewers understood that the Mandalorian never forsook the way. And Star Wars fans have understood since 1977 that George Lucas borrowed many concepts for a cinematic universe from world religions, including, of course, Christianity. For example, Han Solo is the unbeliever who is converted. Luke is filled with the Force, the Spirit, who brings hope. And Darth Vader is both an antichrist and a messianic figure at the same time. Born of a virgin, sacrificing himself to save his children, and destroying the work of the evil one. Now, to be clear, there is some really, really bad theology in Star Wars, okay? That's not the point. The point is that many concepts borrowed from Christianity, and the way is no different. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to Jesus, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What Jesus tells Thomas and the disciples is beautiful. It's simple. It's concise. Anyone can understand it. Are you anxious? Are you confused? Are you lost? Look to Jesus. Jesus is the way. Now to be clear, he's not your way. He's not my way. He's not that way. And he's not the highway. Jesus is the way. Do you want to know the way to go? Jesus is the way to go. Do you want to know the truth to believe? Jesus is the truth to believe. Do you want to know the life to live? Jesus is the life to live. Do you want a relationship with Father God? Then look to the Son. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. They are one. To reject one is to reject the other. To love one is to love the other. Jesus is Yahweh, Creator, Alpha, Omega, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christians keep asking me this question. Is there a way to God apart from Jesus? 
And the answer remains unchanged. Jesus is the way. Jesus is God. And no, there is no way to God apart from God. Let's take a look now at Acts chapter 11. It says, Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So here we are in Acts chapter 11. Now, two chapters previous in chapter 9, Saul, who was not a Christian at the time, who was persecuting Christ and the church at the time, he saw the light of Jesus and he converted to Christianity. And then in chapter 10, Peter has a vision that shows that God does not show favoritism and that salvation is open to all people, Jews and Gentiles. You see, diversity and inclusion has been God's plan all along. There is no such thing as a favored or unfavored, superior or inferior, race, ethnicity, or skin pigmentation. Not in God's eyes. He created us all on purpose and for purpose. And so in chapter 11, the missionaries came to Antioch. And they set up camp to share the good news of Jesus with all people there, Jews and Gentiles. The disciples sent Barnabas to go to Antioch to provide Christian leadership there, like our pastor here, Eric. And Barnabas, on his way, goes to Tarsus to get Saul so that they could minister together, and there they did for an entire year in Antioch. Now, it is at this point in history that we get our name, the name that each of us still bears today as believers. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. However, that begs the question, if we were called Christians first at Antioch, what in the world were they calling us before then, before Acts chapter 11? How did the world see us, view us? How did they describe us? Well, I imagine that they probably called us some of the same names they still call us today. Hypocrites, judgmental, old-fashioned, religious extremists, hate-mongers, do-gooders, Bible-thumpers, Jesus-freaks. I don't know what they called them. But there was one other name by which we were known all over the world. It was kind of our official name before Antioch. We were known as followers of the way. I'll show you this in other parts of Acts, Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he did not discriminate by gender in his persecution of the way people. In Acts 19, Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. 
They refused to believe, and they publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Acts chapter 24, Paul said to the Roman governor Felix, However, I admit, I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. In other words, I believe the Bible, yes, and I'm a follower of the way, yes. Guilty. The Greek word for way here is hadas. looks kind of like O-D-O-S. It's pronounced hadas. Hadas is a very prominent theme in the New Testament. It occurs more than a hundred times. But it's difficult for us to spot because of the many different ways it's translated into English in our Bibles, including way, road, journey, and path. Hadas can mean a literal road, or it may convey a much deeper meaning. It was a metaphor. Hadas denotes a course of conduct, a matter of being, a way, a manner of thinking, feeling, and deciding. We might think of it today as the whole person concept. That is, this is the way physically, socially, mentally, and spiritually. Hadas. John the Baptist prepared the way, Hadas, in Matthew 3.3. In Matthew 7.13, Jesus declared that wide is the gate and broad is the way, the Hadas, that leads to destruction. Small is the gate, and narrow is the hadas, the way that leads to eternal life. In Mark chapter 11, people spread their cloaks along the hadas, the way, and cried Hosanna as Jesus entered on a donkey. In Luke 24, the two disciples met Jesus as they were on the way to Emmaus, hadas. In Acts chapter 9, Saul was plotting his own journey. He was charting his own path. He was doing what he thought was right in breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, against those who belonged to the way. But along the way, he met Jesus. Jesus opened his eyes and he showed Paul a new way in Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Which brings me to my next point. You see, before becoming a Christian, Saul was a very devoted religious man. And he said, if if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Let me tell you how religious I am. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based upon the law, faultless. When I read this and I see how devoted he was prior to becoming a Christian, it, it, it forces me to ask the question, how does somebody get so blind? The God that he thought he was serving, he was actually persecuting. The exact opposite. Whatever God Saul was actually serving by his murderous breath, 
was no God at all. It was a distorted, perverted, made-up version of God. How does somebody so convinced that they are doing religion so right actually get it so wrong? And the answer is we simply go our own way. You chart your own path apart from biblical direction. You do what you think is right and forget what the Bible says. You treat God's word as if it does not really matter. You treat God's commands as if they are all optional. You treat God's morals as if they are outdated, like he needs to wise up and change with the times. You treat God's name carelessly, like any other vain Empty, utterly meaningless. You replace God's standards with your own. You make your own rules. You create your own God. You carve your idol, not in the image of the one true God, but in your own image. You see, you become the authority on what is right and wrong in this universe. Your Great wisdom and experience define the moral values of society and override any biblical instruction. And like the religion in Star Wars, your fake religion might have a little bit of Christianity in it. But you take so much away and you add so much else to it based upon your own questionable values and fallen character and what we are left with is not the way, but your way. Not the truth, but your truth. And not the life, but your life. Let me share with you a basic biblical truth to serve as an example, but we could use any peculiarity that the Bible teaches I think this is one that the church seems to have forgotten. A truth that, not long ago, and not in a galaxy far, far away, was not controversial at all. And that is that God designed sex for marriage. Exclusively. One man and one woman freely and totally committed to each other as companions for life, sealed by a covenant Sex was not designed for before marriage. It's not designed for outside of marriage. And the concept of adultery in the scriptures is any sexual relationship that occurs outside of the marriage covenant. It's called fornication. And yes, we can sin against a future spouse and God by engaging in promiscuity before we are married. Controversial? This is basic, basic Christianity 101. Let me show you. Jesus said in Matthew 19, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? So two genders, biblically speaking. And he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What we see here is that the reason the Creator designed two genders to begin with was for marriage. 
Biblically, the male is the one designed to produce the seed, and the female is the one designed to produce the egg, and together they produce a family. Together they become one, both physically and spiritually, in the most special of relationships, a oneness that reflects the image and oneness of God himself as Trinity. The writer of Hebrews states, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. This is the way. But maybe we don't like the way. Maybe we don't want the way. So we pretend it's not the way as Christians. We convince ourselves it's it's not the way. Uh, The way is outdated. Uh, God didn't really mean it. We feed ourselves a lie that we want to believe. And we say to ourselves, you know what? It's actually good for us to move in together before marriage. Because we want to see if we're compatible. And that lessens our chance for divorce in the future. You see, we're just being smart. But what we don't understand is that we are already married. One in God's eye. Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I can do whatever I want with my body is not a Christian position. And by the way, it's a lie. Living together before marriage increases the likelihood of divorce. It does not decrease it. According to the National Institutes of Health. Living together prior to marriage is associated with lower levels of marital quality and greater likelihood of divorce. On average, those who cohabit prior to marriage have lower marital satisfaction, poorer communication, lower levels of interpersonal commitment, and greater marital instability than those who do not cohabit premarital. You see, pretending sin is good is just something that we tell ourselves so we don't have to feel guilty about it. But if we want to give ourselves the best chance at a lasting, fulfilling marriage, we'll do it God's way. Which brings us to Ephesians chapter 5. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. And walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, above all, God's way is the way of love. This truth is repeated over and over and over in Scripture. Love is the path that Jesus walked, and love is the path that Christians walk when we follow him. However, 
To love others does not mean that we as Christians must then forsake biblical instruction and values and abandon godly morality to stay in line with the world's morals. But among you, verse 3, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. You see, there's a strategic messaging being promoted in the worldly culture right now that is creating a false dichotomy, a false choice between two alternatives that is not necessary. The worldly message is that in order to love others, we must also accept unbiblical sexual standards. And if we don't, then we hate But in actuality, nothing could be further from God's biblical truth. Uh, Paul here in Ephesians chapter 5 says, Follow God's example. You are dearly loved. Walk in the way of love as Christ loved us. Love, love, love. And then in the very next sentence he says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. There is a connection, therefore, between walking in the way of love and sharing God's truth and design for physical union. One man and one woman freely and totally committed to each other as companions for life in the covenant of marriage. Sharing God's truth in love is never hateful. What is hateful and selfish is not sharing God's truth in love. Because we're afraid of what someone might think of us or they might say mean things about us or we won't be accepted by them. He goes on to say in verse 4, Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. This is part of our message of love. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. To expose darkness by shining God's light of love on that darkness is never hateful. Don't be tricked into being silent. We do need to consider how we share the gospel and how we promote godly biblical living in a world that oftentimes does not want to hear it. And that we do it out of love for others, not in a self-righteous, pharisaical, vindictive or angry way. But we must not forsake God's truth and God's divine instruction in order to submit to the world's unbiblical perspective of love. And Jesus says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Therefore, brothers and sisters, 
we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, Hadas, opened up for us. Christians, this sermon this morning is about us returning to basic biblical values. Our charge is not to chart our own path. Rather, it is to follow the path, the way, the hadas that Jesus has already opened up to us by his blood. In conclusion... The Mandalorian's religion seemed very peculiar to non-Mandalorians. They were definitely counterculture. Most of their people had died. There just weren't that many of them left. Biblical Christianity also is becoming increasingly peculiar in our post-Christian culture. The world doesn't necessarily understand why Christians believe the Bible why we still hold to a value set that was established a long, long time ago in a culture far, far away. And the answer, of course, is that the words of Scripture are inspired by the Spirit of God Himself. The Bible's words are trustworthy and they are true. And God never changes in His moral character. The world changes Yahweh remains the same. And so now when we go out into the world and we tell them that we're saving ourselves for marriage or we share with them whatever other peculiarity about the Christian faith and our relationship with God that they simply cannot comprehend, they just don't get it, we don't have to give them a theological treatise. We don't have to quote to them all of the scriptures that I shared today. In the midst of their bewildered looks, we can simply stand confident in the Lord and say, this is the way. Dear Heavenly Father, in a congregation like this, we all have different ideas and interpretations of Scripture. I know this. But what I ask is that you give each of us the conviction to live out Scripture in the way we do understand it and and that it's guided by biblical instruction and not instruction from the outside dear lord give us the capacity to love others the way that you love them to share the gospel the way that you shared it to be a light in the darkness Forgive us for our own individual sins and the constantly falling short, dear Father. We thank you for the blood that covers our sins and bring us into a right relationship with you that we do not deserve. We give you glory for that. Empower us as your bride, as your church, to go out into the world and be your hands and your feet. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Brother Eric.